This episode was produced in cooperation with the ETH Entrepreneur Club, a student organization which aims to inspire, educate, and empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. The ETH Entrepreneur Club holds more than 40 events every year, resulting in an impressive alumni list of successful startups. If you want to keep up with their busy agenda, make sure to give them a follow on social media. With doing the startup, I actually changed my style completely, 180 degrees. I still had the objective, but I realized that some of the planning methods that I'd been using in my 10-year, 15-year corporate life no longer worked in a startup environment. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Tomoko, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. You are the co-founder and CEO of the market research startup Dermintel, and you're also a researcher at the IMD Business School. Before we talk about your impressive career, I actually want to start with your personal background. Before working in business, you studied international development and human rights. What made you pivot from one field to the other? That's quite a, a development. It is. Uh, this was way long ago, but I had a huge passion for development and human rights. But at a certain point after I'd finished my master's degree, I had uh, thought that I actually wanted to do something about it, something more impactful. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I pivoted to the corporate world. And I went into uh, corporate planning at a global education firm. And I didn't think that I'd stay there for a long time, but uh, the whole aspect of starting something from scratch, I was in a, a business development unit that had to source new ideas, mm -hmm. um, develop business plans, and then go ahead and develop the business. Right. And that in itself was just microcosm of an experience that I'd never that I'd never thought about before. And I really enjoyed that whole putting something together from scratch. And so that's where I ended up. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. You also moved to Switzerland in 2005. What motivated you to come here, to come to Switzerland? Well, first of all, it was personal. So I met my husband while I was rock climbing in uh, the United States. And uh, when he was moving to Switzerland, he said, well, you know, Switzerland is, has a lot of good mountains to climb. <laughs> So uh, that was the the big uh, motivation to move to Switzerland. Sold. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but at the uh, on the, at the same time, uh, I came here for the rock climbing. But then I also realized, well, you know, it's not uh, it's not good to not do have something on the side. Mm -hmm. So I did uh, go ahead and uh, got my MBA at IMD Business School in Lausanne. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned before, you know, this idea putting them into practice that really caught your attention and was a lot of fun for you. Where would you say does your entrepreneurial drive come from? Did you have any role models that inspired you or was that something that just has always been in you and you just discovered it along the way? I think it was there. So after I had uh, gotten uh, my MBA, I did the very traditional route of going into a big company. Mm -hmm. And that is the last thing in the world you would think about entrepreneurial activity. Right. 
However, uh, some of the business units uh, that I was in uh, within this big company, I moved uh, in a job every three years. Mm -hmm. And I think that was also due to a little bit of restlessness on my side to want to do something new every three years. So on one hand, if you work in a big company, there is the opportunity to be able to move from one department to another or from one project to another if Mm -hmm. you are looking for those opportunities. However, I have to admit, At the time, um, they'd come to a time when after more 15 years of working, I really felt, um, I think it was something very personal, that I really felt that I wanted to own something for myself. Mm -hmm. And so there are times when you, uh, it's wonderful working uh, for a corporation and even doing new business development opportunities, but all of your endeavors always uh, are contributing to a larger organization. And it was a very personal, I think, motivation for me to think that I would like to do something for myself. What I like when, you know, you talk about the different things that you did along Mm -hmm. the way, you always seem to have followed your natural curiosity. Do you think that this is sort of a good advice or a good takeaway to lead you to good places? Yes, for sure. As long as you know where that curiosity takes you, and I think you have to have a very open mind. Um, On one hand, uh, that curiosity, for me, I have a, a bit of an understanding that I like to have a lot of different ideas bubbling at the same time. So for me, I think the source of my creativity or my ideas is that I'm always exposed to things that are happening outside of the actual work I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So this leads me to the fact that even when um, I was working, I've always had a day job in my career, but on the side, I've always had something parallel going on. Uh, Nowadays, we call it sort of a side gig. Right, yeah. Um, And it's through the side gig that uh, I've also pursued some of the ideas or curiosities that perhaps couldn't be fulfilled in my day job. I would Mm -hmm. try to fulfill that in my side gig outside of work. And uh, so in that respect, to your question, it is good to fulfill your curiosity. And if you can't do it within the confines of your normal work hours, uh, I would definitely uh, encourage people to pursue that outside of the work hours as well. You said you had many different ideas and topics that interested you. I think many people can relate to that. How do you then decide what you wanted to focus on? Because All our days only have 24 hours, right? So you cannot do it all at the same time. Mm -hmm. You do have to make some decisions. How did you decide what to focus on and what not to focus on? Yes, I I agree with you that the day is very limited. Uh, And I think there's, I I think I would classify it into two or three buckets. So I think there's one aspect of personal fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the personal fulfillment is in terms of upskilling some idea or job uh, that you might have. Uh, That I think uh, you can it depends on what you're trying to do in what you want to accomplish that particular time. Mm-hmm. The second thing is also if you have an idea, and as mentioned, I've always had a little bit, of, I've always been interested in ideas and whether I can pursue them. Yeah. Um, and I think the second one was I always knew that I would like to have a business, but time-wise I knew that I couldn't do it when I had a full-time corporate job. Mm-hmm. But the third one was, I guess, uh, in terms of my own experience, I don't know if it was personal development, but it was an aspect where I'd always enjoyed research and writing. So um, one of the things, that was something I knew that I could do because it was a task that I could do on my own time. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, I could do that after hours. Uh, I could do that when, for example, I had uh, two small children. I could do that when the kids were in bed. So, for example, so that's an example of how that particular research and writing on the side was something that I could pursue mm-hmm. because of these different constraints that I had. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then your curiosity actually led you to entrepreneurship, you know, after trying it out in, in a big corporate environment. You said, it's time to have my own company. So in 2016, you co-founded the market research startup Dermintal. And a big challenge that you faced there was basically, you know, while building a company was looking for or finding a technical co-founder. How did you go about that? Because that's also something that many people probably listening to this can really heavily relate to. Yes. So uh, my startup, uh, the Dermantel, S-A-R-L, was a, um, it's a software, it started off with the idea of being a software sort of digital accompaniment Mm -hmm. to people. So in that respect, one of the first things one had to build as a prototype was an app, and it was with sort of a a user interface, uh, a chatbot interface. And coming from the corporate world, I actually had no experience in technical development. Mm -hmm. And uh, also the fact is, is that uh, um, I didn't really have a network to even tap upon. So to your question, who do you go to? So the first thing I tried was my own uh, business network, uh, which did not really uh, provide me with a lot of information because the people that I would be networking with are more general business people without the technical Mm -hmm. skills. So the second avenue that was actually rather helpful was at a university setting. Mm-hmm. So there was, uh, especially uh, here in Switzerland, where we are based, uh, there's a lot of technical universities which have innovation parks. And so I had registered uh, and signed up to be part of the local ecosystem within an innovation park at a university, nice. which allowed me to meet some people and then gain some contacts. But the third avenue that really worked for me was that uh, I had... Uh, Uh, known a person who uh, was a professor at an applied university. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Switzerland, we call it uh, a Fachhochschule or an Autecole. And uh, she suggested that we could perhaps get a master's student uh, to work on the project uh, just as part of the person's project or thesis. Mm -hmm. And that's actually how I found my potential co-founder. So he was uh, a master's student who... uh, um, used his own thesis Mm -hmm. to develop uh, the code and the interface for the product idea that I had. And then he also got so involved in it that he opted to become one of my, uh, the co-founder. Fantastic. That sounds like a lot of untapped potential there, combining the entrepreneurial world with the research or the university world. I think so. And I think there is, uh, especially for those who just do not have those contacts, I think this is an, another creative way to you know, get the project developed, mm-hmm. but get a, pro- get a project developed in a way that works for both parties. Yeah. And uh, in my case, the partner, you know, the student that actually ended up becoming my partner, that was also because I think the expectations were aligned. We both yeah. had the same objectives. We also realized that we had the same motivations as well. Mm -hmm. And that I think the most important was that we both said, well, why don't we give it a try? Sure. What I actually also like about that is that you both are, of course, enthusiastic about the idea and the problem that you solve. But then at first you can work together. You experience, does that work as a team? Can we actually collaborate together? 
and only then you made the step to become official co-founders. I think that's crucial to avoid any you know, big mistake that would then potentially lead to a co-founder split. I think so. I think we had this trial period together where we both figured out how to how to work together. Uh, of course, once we had officialized our, our partnership, uh, then there were also different challenges that came our way. Sure. However, the initial time that we had this trial period was 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 extremely invaluable. The, the trial period was sort of your due diligence on each other. That's right. Another thing that you actually also, you know, could be seen as a challenge is you not only were looking for a technical co-founder, but you actually built your company while having two kids. How did you do that? Was that a challenge that you also said, hey, that was actually a really challenging time for me running everything at the same time? Mm, yes and no to some extent. Mm -hmm. I think um, it was more, I think, trying to build and develop the startup or, or try to get the, I would say, courage to do the startup mm -hmm. coming from the corporate world and then going into a completely new environment. I think that was the big challenge. And where the children came in was that um, when you're jumping into a completely new ecosystem, like the startup ecosystem, I think it does really depend on finding out where the information is, mm -hmm. which you can only do through networking. There's a lot of tacit information in the startup ecosystem. And while there's a lot of theory, I think you really have to go out and meet people. Now, some of the startup uh, networking events, they're in the evenings. Um, and it's these types of, first of all, trying to get into the local e ecosystem to network, mm -hmm. and then finally finding the time to go and join the network events, which are in, perhaps in the early evening, which is a little bit difficult if you have to chauffeur kids around from different places. So it's a little, I think it was more in terms of the networking where there was a bit of a time constraint mm -hmm. in how much you could do it. So I think that was one. Um, the second one was in terms of having a family I think uh, as parents, uh, you also get used to just trying to find the time to do it out around your family lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So as long as you had the flexibility to do that, it's possible. It yeah. just depends on your energy level. Sure. But I mean, entrepreneurship can be a huge asset there because you have that flexibility compared to the corporate world, right? Yes. And I think that's what I really uh, have enjoyed about that experience in terms of the, you, you really have that flexibility in terms of your time mm -hmm. um, and in terms of um, uh trying to get the information you need. I think what the challenge, of course, is that there's so many opportunities and mm -hmm. it really depends on how you can target what you need at what time so you can use your time efficiently. Right. Mm. Would you say that today it is still much harder for a woman to balance building a startup with raising a family mm. than for a man? I think it depends on everybody's personal situation. I don't know if it's about... I don't. No, I wouldn't say that there's a differentiation between the gender per se. Mm -hmm. I think it's more in terms of your the configuration of, of your family life. Uh, and as we had just talked about, it, the startup uh, envi entrepreneurship environment is one where you actually have control. So in mm -hmm. that respect, if you, it's very empowering that you can do things at, at your own time. So... I didn't feel that the family life intervened with it as much. Um, and But I think it's just more in terms of how you juggle your time, which is mm -hmm. the most important challenge, whether it's a woman or a man. Sure, yeah. 
And in the end, Dermatol didn't work out. <laughs> what went wrong and what did you take away from that experience? Yeah, so I think there were a couple of things. Uh, one is that both my co-founder and I, we were trying to do Dermantel. It was still at a very early stage. Mm -hmm. We both actually had full-time jobs uh, because when we started, when we both started the the startup, um, we were doing the startup full-time, but then we both went on to also get full-time jobs. So it became a part-time endeavor for both of us. Yeah. Um, The good thing was, and this is where my learning about having the right expectations with your partner mm -hmm. was really important. So in that respect, we both respected that we were both, um, we both had a full-time job. We were going to do our best to try and move it forward. And if the startup gained more traction, that then we would make that decision about what we would do with our full-time job. Sure. And so we both had that, we had both discussed that attitude we'd had. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the first. But at the same time there, it's also always challenging, right? Because I could imagine that you would then be in a situation where you say, well, if I would invest a bit more time, maybe we get more traction, but I just don't know. Yeah. So this is also a bit like a chicken and egg problem, right? You need to invest time to build traction, but you only want to invest more time when you actually have traction what comes first, right? That's challenging. Completely. We and we face the chicken and egg problem all the time. So in terms of our conversation, that was what we had talked about. We said, well, what should we focus on mm -hmm. to get the traction? Yeah. Uh, and so that we could uh, focus our limited amount of time mm -hmm. in that particular thing. So in that respect, it was good because we had this focus in our conversation. On the yeah. other hand, there was also the excuse that we had the full-time job, <laughs> which didn't allow. Yeah. So it was a very weird situation. And so coming back to um, why it didn't end, finally end up with traction, mm -hmm. one could always reflect, ah, is it because we didn't do it full-time and, and that we didn't push all the, all the possibilities we mm -hmm. needed? But when my partner and I did the debrief, uh, we decided actually I, it wasn't really a matter of the time. It could have also just been in terms of the value proposition. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a lot, and a, a, to the point about the chicken and egg, it was also about at an early stage startup environment, do you try and get the pilot quickly in order to uh, show the value of your idea? Mm -hmm. Or do you keep on working with the prototype to try and get to the pilot? And we were stuck in a little bit of that dilemma. Unfortunately, in 2020, that was when the COVID pandemic hit. We were in discussions with two companies for a potential pilot. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, the companies decided not to go ahead because of the COVID pandemic and they put yeah. everything on pause. And I think at that particular point, then we made the decision Ah, uh, okay, now our two pilot projects that we were in discussion with um, have paused. So at this point, what do we do now? Mm -hmm. And that's when we both had the discussion that, well, maybe we also put it on pause too yeah. and then move on. So that was how it went. Was that a difficult decision for you? Because, you know, you invested time and money into that company and into eventually building something that would kick off? Mm-hmm. It was a difficult decision. At the same time, there was, uh, at the moment we made the decision, because it was a joint decision, mm -hmm. uh, we looked, I think, at our personal circumstances was one. Uh, and my partner had also just recently moved out of Switzerland. So that also was, I think, a, a factor that came into play. Mm -hmm. And the second one was that we felt that we had done 
all that we could mm -hmm. at that particular point in time. So in that respect, it was a, a little bit of would, I think the decision that at that point was, do we pivot mm -hmm. to a different business model or do we continue? And at that point, what would it take if we had to pivot? How much more further investment would we need to do? And would we want to go there? Yeah. At that point, we also had uh, the support of InnoSwiss. We had an InnoSwiss coaching program, which is a program here in Switzerland um, that helps startups. And so uh, we had had a consultation with our coach and we prov provided sort of our thinking about what we wanted to do. And we also got the coach's feedback. And at that point, I think we all sort of said, okay, well, why don't we, why don't we just uh, put, it, uh, put, it end, put, put an end to this point as well? Fair yeah. point. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we, we had some interesting learnings or I had some personal learnings from the entire endeavor. Mm -hmm. And one, I think, personal learning was that um, before when, we, when I worked in a corporate environment, everything was very planned out. You know, we used to work on one-year plans or three-year plans. And we, after you set a plan, you would go ahead and execute and it would be a very fine detailed execution. Mm -hmm. With doing the startup, I actually changed my style completely, 180 degrees. I still had the objective, but I realized that some of the planning methods that I'd been using in my 10-year, 15-year corporate life no longer worked in a startup environment right. because nothing actually, um, you know, you, the investment you could get, but, you know, the planning, there was always something that went wrong. There was something unexpected or something didn't quite work out. So if you worked in with a really hardcore corporate planning perspective mm -hmm. in an early stage startup environment, I realized that didn't work. Work. And so personally, from a management style, I realized that one has to adapt and change your mindset, mm -hmm. as well as uh, how you go about doing it. And so that was one big learning. And it actually made me very open into how I do business planning, especially in early stage idea creation, or even trying to go from, you know, like, like trying to start up something. So right. I, that was a big learning that yeah. I had. Yeah. And I think the second one was if you have um, the importance of network, mm -hmm. uh, especially if in my situation where you're coming from a corporate environment and, and doing a startup, or even if you're coming from an academic environment and going into a startup environment, the startup environment has its own set of logic, its own set of rules, uh, its own set of stakeholders and ways of doing things. And uh, trying to navigate your way around these new rules of play mm -hmm. was something that requires a really big learning curve. Yeah. And so I think if I had another learning, uh, as I mentioned, it's always good to do side gigs <laughs> on the side. But if I'd known that I was going to actually go off and do my own startup, I think I would have taken the effort to be starting to look into some of these startup networks and communities so you just understand how things work before you launch your startup. Because once you launch it, you're, you want to sort of um, accelerate the learnings very quickly because you don't have a lot of time. So if you're able to do that homework beforehand, I think that could have really helped. Yeah, because it takes time, right? To build the network, to get yes. to know the right people, understand how that ecosystem works. Yes. Do that before to then kickstart your journey as yes. an entrepreneur. That's, that's a good advice. Yeah. Then after your startup, you worked for a couple of years at the Swiss Unicorn, Next Think. 
And then you transition into the research and writing, as you already mentioned at the beginning. So in 2019, you then joined IMD Business School as a research and advisor in the digital transformation. You're also a contributor at Forbes, so you really combine the two, research and, and, and writing. So let's talk about a bit of the more specific topics that you write about and care about. So in 2021, you published a book on digital transformation best practices. Can you give us a glimpse on what some of those are? Yeah. So a lot of the work that I do is now helping companies trying to launch or sustain their digital transformations. And now in 2019, 2021, a lot of companies have started their digital transformations. So they're in what we call the fog of war. <laughs> they started it, but yeah. no, how do they go about doing it? Right. And what it is, is that from our research, we know that 87% of companies uh, that have started their digital transformations have not yet fulfilled their digital transformation objectives. Mm -hmm. So it means actually the success rate for digital transformation is rather low. Yeah. And so this book that uh, we wrote, we decided, well, there's a lot of books about the concept and how you have to start it, but not a lot of best practices for how you can start sustain, and then maintain your digital transformation. So we have about, um, we came up with about 30 best practices for digital transformation. Mm -hmm. And for example, it really also starts from, I don't know, I don't think companies have trouble with initiating digital transformation, especially during the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. But now it really is about, um, uh, you know, how do you create, a lot of companies struggle with how do you create the best business model that actually has value. The second one is about um, how do you lead a digital transformation, which I think is very different from just leading a, a project or mm -hmm. initiative. And the third one is um, there's just a lot of um, new technologies, emerging technologies that are coming out. And so when people when people ask us about digital transformation, there's always they're always asking us about new technologies. Is it machine learning? Is it blockchain? But that's not digital transformation. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we we also try to give some advice about, so, uh, you know, don't focus so much on the technology itself, mm -hmm. but focus more on the organization, the governance model of how you would execute uh, the culture and the people, because it's all about sustaining it rather than mm -hmm. just launching it. And in that regard, many companies create sort of a new job role, right? The chief transformation officer. Mm -hmm. What is your take on that role? Is that really necessary? Would you support to have this role in your company to successfully manage that transformation? Or is it more, you know, a marketing thing to show to the outside that we do the transformation, but it doesn't really make a big difference? Yeah. So there's a lot of C roles. There's the chief transformation officer. There's now the chief uh, digital officer. There's a lot of these C level roles that are coming out. And uh, in my opinion, uh, a lot of these roles are very good when you're at the start of a digital or any type of transformation because it puts uh, somebody responsible for it. And I think the trouble, or the challenge with the digital transformation is that it's an organization-wide transformation. So what it means is that companies usually work in silos. So it is good to have somebody to be able to sort of motivate Mm -hmm. uh, and bring those silos together in one. Yeah. So usually this type of role uh, is at the executive level. Uh, it's working with the different businesses and it's mm -hmm. trying to bring everybody together, which is really good at the start of a program. Mm 
But that's not the problem, as you mentioned before, right? Yeah. That's the easy part, so to say. That's right. And so what we actually have done some research that mm-hmm. uh, the the at least for the chief digital officer, the tenure, the mm-hmm. average tenure of a chief digital officer is 36 months. It's about two and a half years. Well, that's by far not enough to have a lasting impact on the organization, right? right? So what it is, is that for whatever reason, these people come in, usually from outside, they mm-hmm. come in and they, 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 they start the program, but then either they leave or they go on to different roles within the company. And our assumption is, is that around the two and a half year mark, they've done their job of motivating everybody to come on board on a digital transformation. Mm-hmm. But as we just mentioned, this type of transformation has to be, become embedded into the organization. And right. at that point, the role is to sort of transition yourself out to make sure now that the business fulfills and takes it on. So that's what we see. And so in that respect, to answer your question, it's good at the beginning, but then they have to transition it back into the organization. So the big question is, of course, how do you then still manage a successful transformation beyond the two and a half years that it takes to set everything up, to get everyone motivated, to also see and experience sustainable results? That's right. And we always say that digital transformation is not a program, it's a journey, Mm -hmm. and it's a never-ending journey. And uh, in that respect, after the program has been launched, it's like a startup. At that point, it's all about scaling. Mm -hmm. And then from scaling, it's about making that scaling so automatic to your business that it's run that you're becoming a digital business rather than a transforming transforming business. So I think that's the real key. And I think one of the things that companies that have done it well, they really have tried to uh, do a combination of upskilling uh, uh, their employees so that everybody sort of owns what digital is. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they do is they've also d- implemented very good governance structures which change over time and adapt. Okay. So, for example, you know, uh, when you first start a digital transformation, it, there's usually a, a, a central organization, but with some business partners. Mm-hmm. Then maybe at the point of some digital maturity, they might sort of embed it a little bit more into the business. And so I think in that respect, it's this gradual embedding and sustaining that happens. Perfect. And, you know, today we also talk about inclusive and non-inclusive digital innovation. That's also something that you care about. Can you talk a bit more about the difference between the two? Right. So right now, especially in terms of digital, we have a lot of societal grand challenges coming up. So Mm -hmm. we have digital transformation, but we also have climate change. We also have uh, equality and diversity issues as well. And so the real question is, how can you actually bring all of these different currents together? So we're looking a lot about that. And that's my big interest now, not only about digital transformation, but how can you do this in a very inclusive way? I think there's one element where Whoever's developing, if you're a company developing something, um, you have to anticipate now. Mm-hmm. So anticipate what you're developing and how it could be used. So this is where we come into ethics. Uh, we also come into if you're innovating a new product, whether you're a startup, you know what are the multiple impacts it could have? And mm-hmm. are you also thinking holistically, not only about the product and the market value, but product and, you know, contribution to the climate, et cetera. And so I think in that respect, there's one element of inclusivity and innovation where you have a product team, which 
is inclusive and can represent those different points of view. Mm. The other one is also talking about, um, you know, having different cognitive styles as well. And then in addition to that, rather than making it very, you know, we have to do this, we have to do that, it's more just can you develop a mindset of anticipating what might happen? And so one of the other things that I'm looking at right now is the topic of accessibility. Mm-hmm. So how can products uh, be developed so that anybody with any uh disability, uh, whether it be physical, whether it could also be uh, cognitive, mm-hmm. uh, dis- uh, that these products are accessible to all. And a yeah. lot of technology companies are going into this area. And in that respect, uh, a lot of some of these technology companies have used the concept of lead user, right? Okay. And so these are people who have who have a specific niche in terms of how they use a product mm-hmm. and it's a it's a niche but they know it so well that while the rest of the population hasn't yet anticipated they will need this this feature right. by focusing on the lead user they're actually you know companies are coming up with new features that could possibly be generalized so for example um, in a non-technical world uh, you know they have you have ramps on side curbs mm-hmm. so these ramps uh, were originally developed so that they were wheelchair accessible right but now you and I we use them when we have to like roll our ca- you no know, travel bags yeah, up exactly. onto the sidewalk <laughs> so that's one example of how it became universal yeah. and I think voice activation TVs that was, uh, you know, first for people with vision impairments, mm-hmm. and now it's used by all of us. So, right. you know, I think innovation, if you think of inclusivity, mm-hmm. that could also uh, have uh, market value as well. Wow, that, that's super fascinating and will become more and more important in the future, definitely. Yeah. Uh, another thing, you know, we already briefly talked about the challenge of, you know, having your own kits and building a company at the same time. Mm-hmm. Has the tech space from your experience, you know, now observing it for multiple years, has the tech space become more female friendly in the past few years? And what do we still have to improve to get better at this and to hopefully also have a more equal split between male and female uh, in the tech space? I think in the tech space, it's improving, but perhaps not enough. There's mm-hmm. still continued debates about the lack of uh, representation of women, especially in the top of ech- upper echelons. I think yeah. we're seeing a lot more engineers. Uh, and given that technology is also becoming a little bit more general and universal, do mm-hmm. the technology companies, you don't only have to be represented in the engineering departments, but there's also other functions in a technology company where women can be represented. But of course, uh, is it in the upper echelons? I think that's a universal questions about women in the workplace. True. It's improving, improving, but uh, I think there's always room for improvement. Um, What I would also say is that... um, I think it's it's also about women, also about if we come back to the topic about the strategic side gigs, I think mm-hmm. people contribute in many different ways. So, for example, uh, I think we've also got a, a fragmentation of working uh, that is also happening. So um, I think also there could be a point where um, people, whether it's women or men, uh, you may be working at a job, but you may also be having some things going on on the side and people may be electing not to fully be, uh, you know, not to to sort of divide their time between the two. Mm -hmm. And I think the onus is going to be on 
companies, whether they're technology companies or whatnot, to be able to accommodate, well, first recognize that this is perhaps a new type of working that's happening. And then also to think smart about how might you now accommodate the positives mm-hmm. of this. Uh, how could you accommodate the flexibility of that, but also to make sure that whatever rich experiences this person is having outside of maybe the job that they're contracted for, how can they bring it into the company so that the company doesn't lose that richness and diversity? Mm-hmm. Because I think at the end of the day, when we talk about, um, especially your question about women and how it's difficult to um, balance, it's about diversity mm-hmm. uh, and inclusion. But how can you can it uh, how can we actually accommodate all of this diversity of experience so that an organization wins at the same time? Yeah, certainly a big challenge to solve, but a very important one. Yeah. One thing you know, if you look back at your career, you have seen many different things. You have tried out the corporate, the research, the startup. If you look back at that. I feel like we ought to get a glimpse into the future of work just by looking at your career. And you sort of have a portfolio career. I think that's how you called it when we did the prep call together for this interview. So you try out and you do multiple things and there's always like a portfolio of different things that you can then bring to the table. That sounds like a big shift from, you know, focusing on one thing and maybe working at the same company for a very long time. So is the portfolio career, as you call it, is that the new way of building a career or doing work in the future? I think so. I What I see in especially the future of work or where the industry disruption is, is that uh, at least the industry is changing where companies have to change their business plans once it used to be once every five to ten years Mm -hmm. it's now becoming once every three years so it means that the pace of change is accelerating Mm -hmm. it also means then that the pace of change for individuals in the workplace is accelerating at the same time and so what happens is that i think when i look at back on my career which i don't think i planned (laughs) in any way uh (laughs) but it is about accelerating those transitions you have to make. Mm -hmm. And we're all going to be probably in the future, we're all going to be transitioning more rather than less. And we're probably going to be transitioning into different industries, also Mm -hmm. different careers altogether. So if you look back on my career, I think I'm on my third or fourth career, (laughs) and they're very different (laughs) careers. And so what I find, I think the question for a lot of people is how can you transition and help mm-hmm. yourself with that transition quickly? Now, if you're an entrepreneur, that's one transition as well. And you have to you know, think fast and learn the rule, new rules very fast. And I yeah. think that is part of transitioning from any type of career. And I think that's going to be the future of work and how individuals can transition. Mm-hmm. So going back to also what had worked for me when I look back was the fact that I did have these side parallel projects or gigs going on. And when I look at every time I've transitioned, I actually transitioned to the side gig that became my full-time gig. So some of the research that I was doing full-time, that I was doing part-time while I was doing my startup, for example, a little Mm -hmm. bit, that transitioned into my full-time. Or when I was working at a full corporate job, I was doing my startup and had the ideas of my startup on the side, and then I transitioned to the startup. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, I also feel that 
there could be a lot of people looking into. I think if you look at the media right now, there is a, a lot of people who are doing some type of strategic side gig. Mm-hmm. And while that could be something that always runs in parallel to their career, I think also you should use it to tra- help you transition if you want to go into a different space. So use it strategically as well. I like that a lot. It also sounds that adaptability is probably one of the key skills to have to survive in the in the future of work. It is. I, and I think it's adaptability and um, I would say flexibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've also found in my particular area, and it's an area that uh, we research, is called cognitive flexibility. Yep. So, of course, uh, when you do have multiple projects unrelated going on, I think when we talk about transitions, it's about that cognitive transition you can make from doing your perhaps your day job and then all of a sudden switching to something else at eight o'clock in the evening, for Mm -hmm. example. Uh, So that cognitive flexibility also becomes very important. So how can you train yourself to be able to switch from one to the other rather seamlessly uh, is one. And I think it really requires a little bit of discipline on your side. But I think it's also something where um, it could be trained at the same time. So with some of our research, uh, we do try and train that. The second thing that I also see, especially in regards to the future of work, is how you use different digital media in a different way. So one of the other articles that I'd recently written uh, was about emojis. Okay. And how uh, leaders are starting to use emojis in their workplace communications. Mm-hmm. And not only their communications, but for example, as we start going into more hybrid ways of working, sure. where we can no longer see physical gestures uh, anymore that much. So I'm, I was starting to see that people start, started using emojis to enhance what they wanted to say. Mm-hmm. And so these types of new ways of using this digital media is another way of um another way of adaptation that we have to look into as we go into more, as we experiment with hybrid working places as well. I'm, I'm very happy that you said about the research, you know, that this is something that can be trained, the skills, the flexibility, the adaptability. This makes me very hopeful for the future that we can actually learn these skills and get better at them if we don't feel we already have them today or not enough. So That's a a very strong statement that makes me happy. So my last question for you uh, is basically, what is your next portfolio career that you want to tackle? Well, having said that, uh, going with my whole tradition of having a side job or a side gig, one of the things I'm doing uh, on the side right now is doing my PhD. Mm -hmm. So with that, uh, who knows? I think with the research that I'm doing uh, on the doctoral side, it's very much related to Digital ethics. I'm, I think this is another. When you asked about future of work, uh, it really is about. Um, I think everybody's going to have to have a renewed conversation about responsibility, the topic mm-hmm. of responsibility, and especially as digital is pervasive in our life right now. So, what is the impact of the digital technologies we're developing, uh, and how we're even using it? So. I think this is a topic that is that will only grow in the future. Mm-hmm. And so I think in the next stage, I would love to be able to perhaps uh, implement some of the research uh, results that we have, especially in the area of digital responsibility. Perfect. You know, 
we heard how that starts, right? First a sidekick and then suddenly it will become your full-time day job. So we're really curious to see where that will take you. Let's see. So Tomoko, for the wrap-up of today's conversation, we have some rapid-fire questions for you. I give you a short question or different options to choose from and you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Right, we'll try. Japan, the United States or Switzerland? Japan for the food, Switzerland for the skiing. I like that. Entrepreneur, corporate employee or researcher? Uh, I would say entrepreneur and researcher are both the same because they're all researchers. You take an idea, you explore it, and then you have to either write or start it up. So I think the (laughs) researcher and the entrepreneur, yes, both. (laughs) Perfect. Who was the best leader you ever met? The best leader I've ever met was my very first boss. Her name was April, and she was a role model as a female manager. And she had the qualities of being extremely intelligent, calm, uh, able to make firm decisions, Mm -hmm. say no, and uh, very calmly, and had a huge sense of, had a wonderful sense of humor. And this was uh, my very first role model as a boss. And I believe that I've carried on her her influence. That sounds like a perfect combination. Yeah. What what season of the year do you prefer or like the most? I prefer winter because I love cross-country skiing. Nice. And the last one for you today, what makes you hopeful about the future? Activism. I'm seeing activism on all sides, community activism, employee activism, and the fact that uh, that gives me hope because it means that people have opinions, they're willing to voice them, and I think that voicing opinions creates change. Great. Tomoko, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you today, and all the best and lots of success for the future. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.